Fitness Retention Podcast. Welcome back. I am particularly excited about this one. We've got Dr. Paul Bedford who runs the Retention Guru. He's the leader in the space and someone that I read a ton of his work. I listen to all of his podcasts, his videos. I'm really stoked that we got to sit down and talk about some of the most pressing issues facing companies today as it relates to retention. We talk about the currency that we have in fitness. We talk about aligning your staff and members' schedules and also controlling onboarding availability and the onboarding process to maximize how comfortable new members feel during their first couple of visits. I'm really stoked on this episode. Also want to mention that next week I will be at URSA. Shoot me an email at a. G-Y-M-O-T-I-O-N at gmail.com. That's a gmotion at gmail.com. And we will set up a time to get coffee or a beer or shake hands or do whatever you want to do. All right. So here we go with Dr. Paul Bedford on the Fitness Retention Podcast. The Fitness Retention Podcast would like to welcome the retention guru, but I won't call him that because he doesn't refer to himself as that. This is Dr. Paul Bedford, or Paul, and he runs Retention Guru. Paul, how are you? Alex, I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. <laughs> Just the way you wanted it, right? Just the way I wanted it. So you don't refer to yourself as the retention guru, but... Many people refer to you as such. Um, can you give a background on why people refer to you as the guru and a little bit about your path to where you are now? I think most people listening to this podcast will probably know who you are, but still good to hear it from you. All right. So I've been in the health club business for 25 years, started working in a YMCA as a basically a fitness instructor, and then worked my way through up into general manager. Um, and I also spent time training people to be personal trainers for an educational uh, company. But I stepped away to study academically, did a master's in exercise psychology and a second master's in research science, and ended up doing my PhD, looking at how you change behaviors in gym environments. Mm -hmm. As a result of doing the mix of, I've worked in the industry, I understand psychology, but I can also do academic style studies um, and data analysis. It, it positioned me where I could take a large format of data, or a large amount of data, analyze it and work out in some ways where the problems were just from the data, as opposed to saying, do you know what we should try? So rather than coming up with a hypothesis and then trying it, I'd look at the data, um, and as a result, that's led me to running, you know, I did a, for the US market, for URSA, I did a study of 1.47 million customers mm -hmm. in a year period. Um, so quite a large study. Um, we did something of similar size in Australia, we've done it in New Zealand. So a lot of the work I do is data-driven first. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we apply behavioral psychology and strategy around that. Because I think I've been able, you know, we've, I think we've analyzed now 
more than four and a half thousand facilities in the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, most people are saying to me, have you got any data on? And the answer is usually yes. Um, if it's something we think is relevant. So someone will say to me things like, um, how does having a jacuzzi improve retention? Mm. And I'll go, I have no idea. Because I can't measure who's using the jacuzzi and who's not using the jacuzzi. Yeah. If I've got an electronic record of someone's behaviour, I can actually map that out. So we can map out when people purchase things, what they purchase. How does they do those purchases relate to longer tenure from the membership? Um, mm -hmm. So we can split it, you know, by traditional age, gender, um, membership types. So because I can do all of that, that's why people tend to go, yeah, he's the retention guru. Um, hmm. And I suppose it helps having a business called Retention Guru. It does prompt people in that direction. Couldn't hurt. Oh. Yeah. So one, um, one question that I like to ask people who are fortunate enough to be all over the world at gyms is what really is impressing you right now? What brands or companies or experiences do you say they got it right? They nailed it. Um, I think the generally the type of thing we're seeing is where brands are now looking at, and I know this is a fairly general term, but the customer experience mm -hmm. They've moved away from just being selling based operations to saying, actually, who are our customers? What do our customers want? And let's focus on delivering the customer experience more than just a place to exercise. Um, and I think that's a shift in the whole industry. I think that's happened because of the boutique market. Yep. I think the boutiques have done that really, really well. Um, although so they've, they've got really good at, at developing experiences. They're not at the moment from the data I've seen, holding on to their customers for substantial amounts of time, which is a, is a challenge, but I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. But there, mm -hmm. are, there are lots of different operators who are actually just focusing on their customer and saying, let's get the basics right, let's just um, focus on interacting with customers, making sure that what we deliver meets their needs, and just keep the place clean and tidy. I know that sounds really basic, They've gone back to basic to actually have an impact. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it sounds basic from a high level, but it's challenging to execute on, one. And behind every basic idea, there are a lot of complex ideas that go into it. Okay. So we're going to dive into some of those today, which I'm really excited about, um, which I'm really excited about covering. Um, I did a little bit of research on my own and you have more of an academic background than I do. So I'm not going to say that any of these are like proven statistics that have been validated beyond like, let's say three or four hours of research and work in Excel. So that being said, I want to read a few numbers to you. Um, I don't think I sent these over to you beforehand and I want you to tell me what you think they are. Does that work? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have 12 pairs of numbers here. And they are 3.6 and 3.7, 3.4, 4.1, 3.3, 3.4, 3.0, 3.7, 3.0, 3.3, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, 
and 3.2. Now, if you're looking and just hearing those numbers, what do you think about those? What are we talking about? What, what, I, what's the, the focus? To me, that sounds like the mega ball. Um, <laughs> so, hearing those numbers, there's not a large spread. I think the lowest was 2.8. I think the highest was 3.7. Mm -hmm. So there's not 4.1. No, I think there's not a large spread. Mm -hmm. You could be talking about um, lengths of membership in months. Mm -hmm. um, could be talking about length of time staff stay in months. Uh, you're getting warm. Um, I will tell you that the data in the, the set of data here have a correlation of 0.72. So what we're looking at, the first number I read in every sequence is the glass door review about working at a company. Right, okay. The second number is the review score on Yelp with a minimum 1,000 reviews. Okay. And those 12 data numbers or those 12 sets of numbers are the 12 biggest fitness companies in the United States. Okay. So what I'm trying to do is draw a straight line between employee experience and customer experience. Yeah. Not a crazy thing to do. No. But, no. but it shows that of those 12, eight of them are within 0.2 from Glassdoor to Yelp, which to me, just as someone looking at data with a basic understanding of statistics says that if your employee experience is good, the customer experience will also be good. Yeah, and it, 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 I suppose where are the, 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 the questions I would start to ask straight away are, mm -hmm. when they talk about employees, how they define employees, mm -hmm. are these people who are you know, on a permanent contract, paid monthly, you know, on the payroll, or are these people who are working within the business but actually running their own businesses like PTs or group exercise teachers that may be self-employed? Um, yeah, and that's a legit question, and it's both. Yeah, I mean, Glassdoor doesn't discriminate on those two types of things. Yeah. Um, but... I think that it is very interesting when you look at a company that has like a 2.6 review on Glassdoor with thousands of ratings about working there and a 2.8 for customer experience or the, the Yelp score, which I would kind of say is how a customer feels about doing this with your brand. So to me, when I look at customer experience, I also look at employee experience. And one of the first things that you mentioned was nailing the customer experience. So I would love to dive into the topic of how to nail customer experience by understanding employee experience. Yeah. Um, so I wanna just open the floor. You've done a ton of work over the last 10 years. Is there anything you can tell me about the connection between the two before we get really specific? Yeah, I think the thing that, you, that I look at quite often is the gap between what the company at senior management team level are looking to achieve. And then and the, what mo is motivating that, and then what the actual staff in the facilities 
are motivated by it. Mm -hmm. And often there's quite a big gap. In, so depending on who owns those companies, and often the ones I'm having to work with are owned by venture capitalists or private equity, mm -hmm. their motivation is three to five year, turn it round, flip it, let's yeah. make as much money as possible. Mm -hmm. Person working with on the gym floor, their motivation is help people make something better of their life. Mm -hmm. And that's a very different motivator than the, the, the financial motivator. So often externally at campus, we're all about the customer, we're all about delivering a great service. And depend, you know, they perhaps should have it brackets after that. As long as it doesn't cost us too much and we don't have to invest too much money in that. You know, so because there is this you know, we're in it to make money. Mm -hmm. I have no problem with that. But I think sometimes they're misleading both staff when they employ them and the customer when they market to them. They're saying, mm -hmm. we're going to do this great big thing that's going to change your life. But there's a caveat to that. And the caveat is that if it costs us too much money, we're not doing it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people have brought, who come into the industry, particularly with the big organisations, you know, and I work with a lot of big organisations, their perception is if I work for a big branded name, the experience I get at work will be brilliant. Where often what I see is actually when they work from small to medium sized businesses, mm -hmm. actually their experience of work is much closer because the owner operators are much closer to the business. Mm -hmm. You know, a meeting about personal training isn't just one hour talking about how many sessions have been sold, how many trainers have generated what income. They're actually conversations about what's the quality. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a disparity um, between what the frontline staff think they're there to do and what the business is saying, actually, we're trying to achieve this. So how do you connect those two things? I mean, like... Someone who is a front desk fitness employee or customer service desk fitness employee, how does a company that is driven by profit motivate that employee? Well, well actually, it, it'd be difficult to motivate that employee to be driven to make more profit. The mm -hmm. employee is motivated by providing a great service. I think it almost has to happen the opposite way around. You have hmm. to go to the senior management team and say, based on the research that we've done and the numbers that we've got, if you have front of house staff that interact with customers, your customers will give you a net promoter score of, say, a seven. Mm -hmm. The more interactions they get and the more visits they make, the longer their tenure. If we know that people stay more than nine months in some of the bigger health club chains, the revenue they generate is 140% of their membership. So they pay their membership fee, but they then each month spend another 40% on top of that. Mm -hmm. Now, at the top end, if you're looking to make money, my, question, my, my approach would be, okay, what do we need to do to get that 40%? How do we get people to an extra yeah, up to nine months, 10 months? Because mm -hmm. they're worth more money. And that's through getting the staff to do the customer service, the customer facing stuff. Mm. So it's almost, convincing some of the top up with some of the top management but actually having a person standing on the gym floor just talking to customers is adding value and income to the business as opposed to that person's costing me money mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I don't, I don't, look, in all businesses, you're going to get people who turn up because they just want a job, and you'll have those who turn up because they want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. You hire people can actually filter out a lot of just job seekers just by putting a couple of hurdles to jump jump over. Um, so it's it's about I think aligning the values of the different the different parts of the organisation and recognising yeah it's great to make money but not you can make a lot of money without actually decreasing the customer experience. Mm -hmm. You look at outside of the fitness industry. You look at somewhere like Ritz Carlton. Mm -hmm. Ritz Carlton don't have a problem making money. <laughs> no. And yet their service is impeccable. In fact, their service is the gold standard for hotels. Mm -hmm. And they invest in that all the time. Um, you know, we are using an analogy here in the UK. So if we have a swimming pool here in the UK, we have to have lifeguards if it's open to the public. Mm -hmm. um, by law, they have to have two hours training per month. It's mandatory. Uh -huh. And they go over the same skills, life like that water recovery, um, spinal boards, all the things you would normally need to do every mm -hmm. month. Yet you speak to most operators and you say, how often do you do customer service training? Once a year, once every two years? And so I just posed the question. I said, look, you do mandatory training every two, what, two hours a month for a skill you hope your staff will never have to use. Mm -hmm. And you do training on service once a year for something you want them to do every day. Mm -hmm. And you just see them go, yeah. Because they don't think of it. It's, I think sometimes it's too ingrained in thinking about the product rather than the experience. Yeah. You know, it, in, in, it, I think that, I mean, obviously that makes sense when you say it. Mm. And I think that oftentimes the training that people receive only happens in the, like the acclimation phase of their employment. Yeah. And I talk to gyms all the time and I say like, how often are you role playing? You know, like different sales scenarios, different customer service scenarios. And the answer is when people start, they role play usually, I mean, hopefully that's what they do. And after two months, they are done role playing for their entire tenure. So what you're saying is the skills that you're giving someone in the first two months are good enough to take them to five years of employment. Don't you think that throughout those next like 50 months or however many months of being employed, they're going to run into a, div a div diverse range of customer, of situation, of basically any event that they need to be able to respond to without testing it out on the customer. You can't test things like that on the customer. And it's just, I think that, I mean, to your point, training needs to be continuous. There needs to be this continuous learning and continuous improvement approach because you can't just innovate once every two or three years. You need to be able to innovate your skills just like you innovate your facility. And I think that that is missing oftentimes in the employee experience because they receive training and then it's like, okay, now what? Um, so I was wondering, I mean, you know, do, are, are you role playing with your clients? Are you helping people role play? What, is, what does that look like? What does that process look like for you? Yeah, for us, we look at it, we tend not to call it role play because we know that lots of staff mm -hmm. sort of recoil at the idea of role play. 
So we do, what we do is we practice tasks. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about it in the same way a sports team would talk about it. We're going to have a practice, we're going to look at some drills, and we're going to run through those drills. Mm -hmm. um, and one of you is going to be the person, the member of staff, one of you is going to be the customer, and we give them, obviously, activities and tasks to do. We'll do them in small groups. Often we'll do practice unobserved. So let's say I'm in a room of 12 people. I say, get into pairs, mm -hmm. run the task. And I'll just mm -hmm. hang back. And I won't get involved, I'll just let them do it. And mm -hmm. then I'll make the change a couple of times. So they've had a bit of a chance to try it out themselves before I'm through the scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Because what I see everyone is doing is they watch someone do the training. And the person's trying it for the first time. And as soon as they don't get it quite right, they say, oh, no, no, that's not it. Yeah. They'll leave them to fail and go, and even sometimes realize it themselves, go, that's not quite right. Yeah. And build it up so that one or two people do it in front of two other people, and then two people do it in front of four, and then in front of six, until in the end, they're all feeding back on one another mm -hmm. on what they're noticing. And often what happens is they become really supportive of each other say why don't you try this i've said this this works for me mm -hmm. rather than that you didn't stick to exactly what paul said yeah um, so we build them up over time but we get them with the companies that work with long term we get them to um, do reflective logs so mm -hmm. they do particularly for the managers at the end of each day last five minutes of their shift they write down things that went well and things that they're working on and they bring those to the training and say, here's something we need to work on, here's something else we need to work on, or here's something I worked, I had a problem with, the next day I tried it like this, and mm -hmm. it improved. So we use a lot of reflection um, to get people to practice and think about what is it like being the customer. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's how we're doing it within the trainings that we do for operate. So let me ask, in these, these drills that you're doing, have you had any experiences where you're like, whoa, that was really good, and it was something that you'd never encountered or seen before? I think, I think almost every time. But I think people come up with things. Yep. And, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. So um, I'm just trying to think. There was one a couple of weeks ago. There was someone who was talking about different ways of interacting. Mm -hmm. um, Oh, no, I know what it is. One of the, one of the trainers that I met um, walked through the facility and high-fived every person they walked past. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, I said, you high-five everyone. But yes, yeah, Paul, you were talking about the importance of touch, mm -hmm. appropriate touch in terms of, you know, reassuring people. He said, because high-fiving people never feels like an inappropriate form of contact. Mm -hmm. Hands on their shoulders, or I come up and I put my arm around them. Some people may, you know, misinterpret my intention. Yeah. And so I was high fiving first all the people I knew, and then walking past them, not, you know, the massive high five, you know, but just how are you today? Yep. To, and I was like, can you get away with that? And we're like, yeah. And we're like, okay, I'm not sure that I'd get away with that. Hmm. It worked for them. Yeah. Um, so there are, I think there's all, I'm, I'm constantly surprised by the ingenuity of people, or the creativity of people to find a way um, 
But I'm also really disappointed by the number of times there's the, the resistance to even try. Mm-hmm. Like, oh no, that wouldn't work for me. That wouldn't work for me. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I use an expression: if your presence doesn't make a difference, you're absent. You, you, if you're if you're absent, you won't be missed. Hmm. So you've got to be present. You know, you've got to be the value when you're there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just get the frustration from the ones that go, "That wouldn't work. That wouldn't work." I'm like, it seems to work with everybody else. <laughs> well. That I think I think oftentimes, and you were mentioning a script earlier, and how maybe you don't love scripts. Uh, I I completely agree. I think in interactions there should be maybe one or two planned things that you are extremely comfortable saying, um, whether it's the opening or the close or whatever of any interaction. I think that there's everybody has a different way of saying it, but I think when you give people a, a script, you're you're taking away their anonymity. You're turning them into you and you're trying to get them to say what you would say, but oftentimes they're going to say it better than you would anyway. Yes. And I think that that is a problem with sales and that's a problem with a spell. Like I see the personal training scripts that are given out at big gyms to trainers and it is the most unnatural thing I've ever read in my life. It doesn't even read well, let alone when you say it out loud. It's just like, you say that, <laughs> you know, it's just surprising, but um, anyway, I could go all day on role playing. So, um, one question that I that I ask on this show that is is of particular interest to everybody listening is, what's something that every gym can do starting tomorrow to make more money long term? Okay. Um, this again, it's simplistic. Just ask the customer when they're in next. Hmm. So. Our currency, the way I describe it, the currency we have mm-hmm. is visits. If they don't visit, it doesn't matter how clean we are, how well qualified we are, how well equipped we are, because mm-hmm. we aren't having an impact. Yeah. So asking someone on their next visit is will prompt their thought, thought pattern for their next visit. Hmm. We've done work on this, and we know at the basic levels, if I have one interaction with you this month, mm-hmm. I speak to you once in February, the chances of you revisiting the facility next month go up by 20%. Mm-hmm. If I speak to you two to three times in February, the chances of you visiting in March go up by 50%. Mm-hmm. If I speak to you on four or more occasions, so you need four visits, yep. if I speak to you on each of those occasions, the chances of you uh, revisiting the club again in March go up by 80%. Now, if you're selling your memberships month by month by month, you've got to do something to get the next month. Mm-hmm. The easiest way to get the next month to occur is to say, well, when are you visiting again? When mm-hmm. will we see you? Are you in over the weekend? Are you in tomorrow? Those types of prompts we've found have a really big impact Mm-hmm. And with some of the operators I work with on a, actually a really small scale, like single day trainings, which I do very rarely, it's, that's probably the only task we set them after the training. Mm-hmm. Just keep talking. When you're in next, one, it creates a sense of curiosity. And we like it when people are interested in us. Two, it makes us stop and think, well, when is my actual next visit? And mentally, we make an appointment with ourselves and verbally, we make it with the staff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we found the occurrence of them actually, if they say a day or date, the likelihood of them actually coming on that day or date is supposed to be real. Oh, well, I was going to ask, I mean, big brands often have apps, right? Like an app, 24 Hour Fitness has an app. Right. Have you seen any, any like accountability features in these apps where they're saying, okay, I'm going to come in Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., add it to my calendar? Not necessarily a class, just a gym time. No, I've, I've worked with a company called Coach AI. Who's got yeah, I've had Shy on the show. <laughs> Obviously, their app is designed around prompting visits and getting people to visit the club. Um, I know of some, you know, we did some work with a sales company, an external sales company, did impact sales. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the point of sale, because they were giving such a massive discount to the membership, mm -hmm. they were saying, okay, which two times of the week are you visiting? Because those are the two times of the week you're paying for. Mm -hmm. So they would literally say to them, okay, so you're going to come in on Tuesday and a Thursday at 6 p.m. and you can stay up until 8 o'clock. That's the membership you're buying. What we found was that people who bought those very restricted time periods hit those visits every single time. Hmm. Because they, they would only buy the times when they could actually come. And I know we did, we did the other work around circuit training versus, and this is a slightly off line, but we did a study where there was a group circuit training, so what we probably call boot camp now or small group training, at specific times versus customers who could come to the gym anytime they liked. People who had to come at a certain time mm -hmm. and three times more frequently than people who could come anytime they liked. Hmm. So when we actually restricted when they could come, they came more frequently. That doesn't surprise me at all. No, but it's not <laughs> a practice. You know, if you think of it, a lot of the gyms now, it's like we've got 24-hour access. Yeah, I can you know, go whenever. Go whenever, but they still don't go. Yeah. Yeah, at the other end, you've got the boutiques just saying, actually, we're only open at 7 o'clock in the evening. We're open for four hours. We do four classes. We're shut the rest of the time. And they're busy. It so, uh, it reminds, me, it reminds me of this survey that was done by a, a bunch of dentists. I forget which book I read it in. Maybe you know what survey I'm referring to where it says like 95% of our patients show up on time. Yeah. And it they just put that, you know, like a poster in their office yeah. or at, as the tagline of their email. And it increased the amount of people that showed up on time by 40%. So you probably read it in Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, uh -huh. or you read it because someone else was referencing that, because he's probably. done a lot of work on that. Yeah. Um, we do something similar with our customers in terms of when they book their induction or their first appointments. Uh -huh. And we say 80% of people turn up for their appointment. The other 20% let us know if they can't make it so that we can rearrange it. Mm -hmm. What it does is the people who... You know, it's, it's around social proof. Yeah. If that's what people do, I'll do it. You see it in hotels and towels. 80% of our customers reuse their towels for at least three days or their bed linen for three days, you know, to be you know, eco. Um, hmm. You can create lots of those social proof type examples yeah. um, to nudge and shape people's behavior. So I think that's a really interesting idea, but I mean, there's no reason that that can't be applied to the employee. You know, 70% of the people that stay here, 
nine months or more get promoted. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Why, why are more companies doing that? I've never even seen that. I haven't seen that. Um, I think the way, the way I think about start for employees, often most of what we see, think of them as a cost. Uh-huh. I think of them as an investment. Mm-hmm. So you invest in having staff rather than they're a cost. Whereas most operators go, well, the equipment's an investment and the staff are a cost. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, 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 the equipment's a cost and the staff are an investment. The equipment um, is not going to get more valuable. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so, Alex, I'd love to be able to go, oh, well, I know why they don't do it. Well, I don't know why they don't do it. Some do. Mm-hmm. And some see great value in doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they just get on quietly with doing it as opposed to making a big thing of it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I'm sort of stumped on that. I'm sorry. I just, it would seem logical investing in your staff, you'll keep your staff longer. I know I asked the company. We've got a company here in the UK. I can't mention them because they'll get upset if I do. That's fine. Average length of time their general managers stay in their facilities, seven months. Eh? Average length of time their personal trainers stay, about five. Five months? Yes. In 2017, they have their own training academy. They trained nearly 700 personal trainers through their own academy. And by the end of 2018, 640 of them had left the business. Um, that sucks. <laughs> well, now, I look at it and think, that's a lot of time and money to invest. Yeah. Both from the operator's side and from the staff side. Yet, they're, what they're trying to do is they're looking at their PTs as a revenue generator beyond a... No, it's all about revenue generation. If you're yeah. not hitting your revenue targets within eight weeks, you're done. And we'll just put another person in. What uh, a waste of time. For everybody, including the customers. Because <laughs> customers who want that PT, so where's my PT going? Oh no, he's, he's left, or she's left the business. <laughs> you, know, I I think, mean, yeah. I, you know, I don't need to know the brand to know that that's ass backwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, what a bummer. Yeah, if you listen to their brand values, what all about our staff. If you talk to their staff, 2.8 would be great on Glassdoor. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I find that too. And I find that the, the other side of it where there often is no training. If you've had yeah. a job, like I, I have worked at gyms where I was a personal trainer and I had a six month internship to teach there, yeah. which, which is great. I think that's awesome. Like I, I was still able to service clients, but part of my time every day was dedicated to observing and watching like master trainers. People have been doing it for 10 years, do it. And that's extremely great. But then the next gym I go to doesn't even try to train me as an employee. So that's the kind of things where it's like, we're all about our people. And your policies and your procedures will tell you whether or not you're about your people. You can say it all you want. Yeah. Uh, well, go ahead. I was going to say, 
you're probably familiar with Google's Zero Moment of Truth, which they did about purchasing and buying stuff online. We use that, that Zero Moment of Truth concept with the customer experience. Mm-hmm. But we also apply it to the senior management team and the HR team going, actually, based on what you tell everybody you're going to employ, what's the actual truth of what you deliver when a member of staff starts? Mm-hmm. How many staff are put in situations where on their first day, without any training, they're expected to perform a task that requires training. Mm-hmm. Now, particularly like from our staff, where it might be, you know, taking card payments, it might be setting up or taking payments through a cash register. You know, have you taught them how to do that? No. Yeah, you put them right in front of the customer, and they go, "Yeah," and they go, and they can't. In fact, they become a hindrance. Yeah. They can't help the customer, and then they have to get another member of staff to help them do the job. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, you can't really do anything but laugh at that. No. Uh, I'm reading this book right now called It's All About CEX or Sex, but it's Customer yeah. Employee Experience. Right. And I forget the name of the author. Jason, maybe it's Jason Bradshaw. Have you read that one? Right. One of the big questions that he asks is, how easy is it for your employees to accomplish X, Y, Z? How easy is it for them to do their job and how easy is it for them to learn it? And if you make it hard for the employee to do their job, what do you expect the employee to feel about working there? I I, I mean, it's just kind of like a rhetorical question. You have to make, go ahead. I was gonna say, well, I know when I'm working with one person, one of the things, like let's say front of house staff, I say to them, we take someone on today. Uh-huh. How, many, how long does it take for them to go from not knowing your front of house procedures to knowing 80% of them? Mm-hmm. So they could, they could successfully stand in front of, front of house on their own and complete 80% of the procedures required. Mm-hmm. And then it can go, well, it'll take about a month, some if it's a more complex business, up to three months. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so it takes three months. What training do you give them to help them learn those tasks? Um, and again, they often look back and go, oh, well, they just learn on the job. And I go, well, look, the, the reason I say 80% is 20% of the tasks probably only occur seasonally or once a year or once every couple of years. And so there's probably a, an old hand who goes, Oh, I remember what we do with this, yeah. and so there's something we need to do. But the vast majority of day-to-day activities, there's like on-the-job learning, which mm-hmm. creates anxiety in the learner, which is the new member of staff, creates frustration in the trainer if they're not a proper trainer. So, like, oh, I've got to teach you this and do my job, and provide uh-huh. a poor experience. So then you lose staff because they're not, they're not enjoying it, and you're having to recruit again and start the cycle again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're just, I think there's just ways of doing things that the operators, a lot of operators just really struggle with. So I have a thing with where it's feasible to do this. Front of house staff work shifts, not employees. Mm-hmm. I did this in my own job. So if I employed you to work front of house, I might say, okay, you're going to work from 6 a.m. till midday every day. That's, the, that's what we're, we're looking for from an employee. Mm-hmm. You do that Monday to Friday. We have a different team to work weekend. 
And then I'll employ someone else to work a middle shift and maybe someone else to work a late shift, but they always work the same shifts. Mm -hmm. The reason I present that is most of the customers come at the same time every day. Yep. If you walked in, if I walked in and your front of house first thing in the morning, and I see you every morning, very quickly I get used to seeing your face, you get used to me, and there's a stronger relationship. Mm -hmm. If I have you on rotors, I might see you one week and then not see you for three weeks as mm -hmm. to through the, the hours of the business. Hmm. I think it's also easier when you come to employ people to go, we've got a job that requires you to be here from six till twelve. Mm -hmm. Because people go, well, actually, I know I can do that, or I can't do that. Yeah. And a lot of the sports people that want to work in our industry, they're going, well, yeah, I want to come and work there, but uh, Monday evenings I've got soccer practice, I've got football practice, and then Sundays I've got games. You go, well, we have a rotor, and you're going to have to miss some of that practice, and you're going to have to miss some of those games. Mm -hmm. Because you actually have to set shifts as opposed to rotary and yeah. change. You'd actually get more from the staff. You get the people who are good at getting up in the early in the morning, applying for a job where they have to get up early in the morning. Mm -hmm. You don't end up employing people that are rubbish at getting up in the morning, but great in the evenings. Mm -hmm. Dragging their arses, excuse me, dragging themselves in and functioning at half capacity. Because actually, they were still up at four o'clock in the morning playing Fortnite. And now you need them in the club going, hi, how are you? What, what, how can I help you today? Yeah. Well, I think just some of those shifts would really help the customer experience, the member of staff experience, and mm. add to the value what the, what the business is getting. Well, that's, that's like a funny segue into the next question, which is what can every gym do starting tomorrow to save time? And that doesn't, obviously, I, I, you know, I would love another answer. I think even that would have been a great answer because I can't tell you how much time managers spend making schedules. So um, I'll, I'll ask, do you have another one on top of your mind that, that you think is particularly impactful that most companies may not be doing? Yeah, I, the, the one that I suggest to almost every company is um, don't do any gym orientations on a Monday night between five and eight. Hmm. Yep. And the staff that you've got employed, leave them to walk around and talk to the customers that you already have. Mm -hmm. Because I work on this of this process. Monday night between five and eight pm. That's probably your busiest time in most facilities in the week. Yeah. So you've got someone who's coming in and they need an orientation to the gym, maybe an induction and a program. Mm. If the club offers that. When they get there at six o'clock on a Monday night, it's busy. Yep. The customer level of anxiety goes through the roof because they're like, "Oh my God, look how busy it is." Their perception is everybody already knows what they're doing. And they're like, oh, I feel really stupid. I wish I hadn't done this. Mm -hmm. The trainer can't get on any equipment because the existing customers are using the equipment. Mm. And so they're running around almost ad hoc going, oh, uh, you said you wanted to work legs. Oh, there's an adductor machine free. Let's go over there. <laughs> Or, you know, so there's a random set of exercises pulled together because they couldn't get on the leg press or squat or whatever. Yeah. The existing members are sitting there going, it's already busy. And look, they're still signing up more members. Yeah. Well, I just say to operators, I said, and I say, 
if you take to, talk to any trainers about it, they just go, yeah, great idea. Yeah. And then the managers go, yeah, but what about when people want to have an induction on the Monday night? I say, just tell them you don't do them. Yeah. I said, you can't turn up to the cinema and just, or the movies and just go, I want the film to start at 5.37 because that's when I'm here. They'll go, no, it starts here. We're running these, these movies on these nights and on this night, we're showing something different. Um, so you, you can shift it. You only have to, it's three hours. It's three people maximum. Just shift it somewhere else. I'm going to let you know that because I want the industry to get better that I'm going to steal that. Oh, uh, I think that as a trainer, like a, a background with someone who I pride myself on giving like the best orientation, onboarding, whatever you want to call it. That idea is so good. <laughs> you know, like I don't want to, be looking around and say like, oh, well, there's one arm of a cable machine open. I can show yeah. you triceps and wood chops, but that's it. Yeah. You know, like, I think there would be no quicker way to reduce buyer's remorse for someone who isn't comfortable in a gym setting than doing that. Yeah. That's an awesome idea. Um, all right, I'm stealing that. Um, <laughs> you steal it, long as a reference, mate. Yeah, I will, don't worry, I'll cite, I'll cite you. Um, you know, sometimes the simplest things yeah. can be the most effective thing. Yeah. Now, when I've done that with operators, and we've had those, you know, we've had a, a team meeting, and I go, well, I'm going to propose something now. When you see the trainers' faces when I do that, they all just look and start grinning. And when I look at the manager and go, do you want to do that then? And they go, uh, uh, I said, the quickest way to make your team happy is just to say yes. Yeah. And when they go, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try it, we'll do that. The staff are then like, oh, great. But then what you've got to do is you've got to make sure that the staff stay on the gym floor, mm -hmm. walk around and talk to the existing customers. Mm -hmm. You don't allowed to get them to teach a spin class or a small group training session. Mm -hmm. now, if you've got 80 station gym plus free weights and functional, they should be on the floor walking around going, do you need any help? You're training hard, giving feedback, you know, catching people doing things right mm -hmm. we should take those three hours and make them the most impactful by talking to the customer i think that uh yeah i mean that's something that i do with with my clients is like you should probably at some point have a trainer on duty during the busiest times where it just says no pressure any questions you have come talk to blank he or yeah. she is on staff right now yeah. We're not going to sell you. We're just going to try to help you use the product better. Yeah. It's super simple. And if you'd use any product, they have customer service teams or customer success team, not people, teams. And that is a huge thing that I think is the next like phase for big gyms to stay really competitive is just to completely overachieve in terms of customer success. I don't see how that cannot happen. No, but I think what is happening is they're looking at what the boutiques are doing and what they're doing is they're copying the facility, mm -hmm. not the experience. Mm -hmm. So they're thinking the facility, excuse me, the facility and the equipment is the product or actually the experience is yeah. the product. Yeah. Because they go, oh, we could have neon lights behind boards that change colour. They go, you don't get it, it's the you know, you look at something like, I think it's with SoulCycle. 
12-week training program. If you want to be one of their, their, their coaches, one of their, their cycle coaches, mm-hmm. you know, that's one discipline you have to train for for 12 weeks. Yep. Um, because they recognize actually it's the experience that's important as well as the environment. It's not just the environment. That's it. Yeah, and just like thinking about role playing, I mean, 12 weeks, 40 hour weeks, that's almost 500 hours yes. that they've gone through every specific scenario that they're likely to encounter. Yeah. Well, I, I know this is a, this is a, like Disney's the one that everybody holds up. But for Disney, for every one minute of the show or performance, they state there's a seven hours of practice. Mm-hmm. I believe that. I believe that. So, you know, and you think about it, you think that's when, and it comes back to your point from earlier, that's when you know, they're highly scripted, but because they've done so much practice, it's become ingrained. They've found a way of delivering it that feels really, really natural. Um, but it's through the practice rather than just going, pick up the phone, call people who aren't coming in and ask them why they're not coming in. You know, like, <laughs> don't call them. Why are you here? Why are you here? Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, so as one US operator said to me, guys, we ring them up and we ask them, how have we failed you? Uh, and I went, that's your opening line. And they went, yeah. And our calls aren't very successful. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Um, all right, so we're coming up on time. I don't know how much time you have, Paul. Um, I can keep going, but a um, couple more questions that I just wanted to pepper you with real quick. What's a book that you have read recently that was really impactful for you, either personally or business-wise? Why that? Okay. So just, you know, I read a lot of books. Uh huh. Um, so I have a, a strategy of reading for an hour every day. Okay. Um, that's what I've read recently. Hmm. Thomas Pappas by James Clear. Mm-hmm. He talks about processes and systems for changing behavior as opposed to setting a goal. Hmm. Um, and he, I think he really clearly explains approaches that we could adopt within the fitness industry that will be much more important for our customers than some of the traditional ways we've done it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I know it's available on Amazon. He's a US-based uh, writer and blogger, and um, but I really like that. I think for most trainers and even for operators, going through that uh, is really useful. I, w- I would guess the challenge is, is doing the reframe Mm-hmm. Okay, he's saying this is how it works here. What would that look like in our business? Mm-hmm. Now, some people are really good at reframing, others are not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm quite good at reframing. So I can listen to something that, oh, that's how this reframing fit is. But that's, that's what I read. I don't read that. Hmm. I, uh, I haven't read that, but I've heard actually a few people talk about it. So once three people tell me about a book, I buy it. <laughs> Um, but it's funny looking at your bookshelf that looks exactly like my bookshelf did last weekend. I just did the tidying up method. Yeah. And I, I also, I try to read for 45 minutes a day, not an hour, I'm not at your level yet, but I, I got rid of over a hundred books this last weekend and it was so 
hard to do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it feels good. <laughs> well, I, I, this is my home office. So my office, I have a, uh, a building at the end of my garden, and this is my office. And for about two years, I didn't have an office. I was working off the kitchen table. I had an office in an office building. I got rid of it because it was never there. Uh-huh. I was traveling, I thought, why am I paying? I work, just work off the top. And I'll meet people in coffee shops and so on, all of their businesses. Yeah. I ended up having this office built because I couldn't stand anymore. And almost the most relaxing feeling was to put the bookshelves up and put the books there. And just be able to sit down and go, I've got my books. Mm-hmm. I've got day-to-day access to my books and all the things I want to read. Um, so yeah, I'm a, I love my books. <laughs> <laughs> Even my things on statistics and um, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Um, Paul, where can people find you? Okay. So my business is called Retention Guru. Yep. The website is retentionguru.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where if people put that in, they would take them to a site that we've got at the moment. It's got blogs on it. It's got access to some free videos. Mm-hmm. Um, it will have more tr- online training resources there. Um, that's the easiest place to get me. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do a thing every lunchtime if people are interested with lunchtime lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK, they go out just after one o'clock in the morning here, or one o'clock lunchtime here. But depending where you live in the world, they're not their morning lessons, not lunchtime lessons. Um, and every day, Monday to Friday, we post something that is meant to be a thought provoker mm-hmm. for the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let people hashtag lunchtime lessons. I think we've done about 280 so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, we continue to do that. But yeah, that, you know, I hate saying it. Google me. Yeah. Come up. I do come Google up. Google Guru and you might find me. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, even as Paul Redford, I come up really quickly as well. Yeah. Um, but the easiest way is through Retention Guru. And obviously the email address on the website is if people want to email me, ask me questions, that's fine. I try and find time for people as and when I can. And I know we had a, we've had a challenge getting to talk up like this just because I've been so busy. Yeah. Um, but where I can, I get up to people as quick as possible. And I just have to add that the lunchtime lessons are, they show up really early morning here. Yeah. They show up really early morning. And every day when I open LinkedIn, I see them. So there, I think frequency and brevity are really important and you do both really well. So even if people maybe aren't interested necessarily in just the fitness business, the retention lessons can be applied to anything. So I just wanted to say kudos for that. Like there's a ton of value in those and I really enjoy just seeing them every day. So, you know, if people follow you, they're going to get something out of it for sure. Um, Okay, well, hey, uh, we will wrap there. That is the Fitness Retention Podcast episode with Paul Bedford. Thank you for coming on the show, and uh, I'm sure we will speak soon. We will. Take care, sir. All right. Thanks, Paul. 
Alrighty, that was my episode with Dr. Paul Bedford of Retention Guru. Really an awesome conversation and just a treat to sit down and talk with Paul. It's really cool to see what he's thinking about these days as he's working with clients and kind of compare that to how I approach retention and helping clients solve retention problems. Whether it's Paul or it's me or it's another retention expert, I highly recommend having a fresh set of eyes take a look at your business. And without sounding too self-promotional here, it just makes sense. You know, when I need an accountant, I go to an accountant. I don't spend 10 hours trying to do my taxes, banging my head against the wall and ending up frustrated. I seek out professional help. So however you get that done, that would be my recommendation is just to pursue excellence by having an expert in the field come in and take a look at your business. Uh, Lastly, I want to mention that I will be at URSA. This is the last announcement. I know I've been talking about it on the podcast. I'm excited for it. I will be there all four days. And if you want to meet up, shoot me an email at a g-y-m-o-t-i-o-n at gmail.com that's a gmotion at gmail.com we can connect at ursa we can connect before we can connect after however you want to do it works for me all right that was my episode with dr paul bedford on the fitness retention podcast this is alex armstrong signing off